0: So our second reading is from Luke chapter 18 on page 1057. So in this talk we're going to be looking at lots of different verses, but we'll, um, we'll start off here. So page 1057, <clears throat> Luke chapter 18, verse 9. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Would you say that you are a good person? Most people think that they are. I did a little survey here on West India Key on Friday afternoon just to test this out. I had various questions. My first question was, are you a good person? Eight out of ten people said yes. And it's one reason why uh, people are not interested in Jesus and in God and in church. They say basically, look, oh, I'm a good person, I've lived a good life, I do my best when I die... If there's anything out there after, I'm going to go to a better place. And even some who go to church think this. They think that they're essentially good people. Now, God's view is very different. So according to God, we are not the people that we like to think we are. We're guilty sinners. We're heading for eternal judgment. We're in big trouble. We're in huge danger. That's what the Bible says. But how do you convince anybody of that? Unless we can do that, Jesus is going to seem irrelevant. Because the Christian message is about rescue, it's about salvation. So unless you're convinced you need rescuing, you're going to say, not for me, thank you very much. The Christian good news is about mercy, it's about forgiveness through Jesus. So it's got nothing to offer the person who thinks that they are good. So how do you convince someone that they are a guilty sinner heading for eternal judgment? How do we get from I'm a good person who's fine to I'm a sinner heading for judgment who needs rescue? Well, that's what the next two Sundays are about. We've called this series Crime and Punishment, and this week our focus is the crime. So if at the moment you think you are a good person who is okay, the aim is to convince you otherwise, which means this may be a little bit uncomfortable. If you are already convinced of that, and you're trusting in God's mercy, hopefully this will help equip you in engaging with others. So you'll see on the outline inside the service sheets, we'll begin with the summary charge. Charge in the legal sense. The summary charge against us is that we are sinners. So Romans 3.23, and i put all the references in the footnotes there, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or as we had in our first reading, Romans 3, 9, we've already charged that all are under sin. So that is the summary charge leveled at all of us. And all means all, so everybody. Jesus aside, there are no exceptions, not you, not me. Now what does it mean? Well, sin is going our own bad way rather than going God's good way. As our first reading explained it in Romans 3, it says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Whereas Isaiah 53 puts it, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. This term sin, it first appears in the Bible in Genesis 4-7, where God says to Cain, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. And he then, he then killed his brother, the first murder. But it wasn't the first sin. So that the first sin was committed by their parents, Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, when they ate the forbidden fruit. Now, they weren't killers, but they were still sinners going their own way, just as we do. All the Bible says have sinned. If you are charged with a crime, what happens is you have a preliminary court hearing. The charges are read out, and you are then asked how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? For us, this is the preliminary hearing. The charges that we have sinned. How do you plead? Our instinctive response is to reject this charge for various reasons. And this is our second point. Firstly, it's negative. Uh, We want to be affirmed. We want to be told positive things, things which make us feel good about ourselves. We want to be told, you're amazing, you're the best. Whereas being told, you're a sinner, it's so negative. We don't like it. But to reject the charge on that basis is is a bit like saying there is no way I'm ever going anywhere near a GP or a hospital. Doctors are so negative. They're always going on about this condition or disease, that problem. But of course doctors are there for our good. Spiritually we are sick, we are dying, and Jesus is the doctor sent to treat us, to cure us. Secondly... Uh, Saying people are sinners is dismissed as being judgmental. And instead, we just need to accept everyone simply as they are, live and let live, not judge them, not tell them how, how their living is wrong. That's a bit like saying, the justice system in this country is so judgmental. Laws, police, courts, magistrates, prisons... Telling people they've done wrong, telling them they've broken the law, it's so judgmental. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to move to a more tolerant country where they aren't so judgmental, where they don't have these things. Well, good luck with that. We live in a moral universe, the Bible says. God is just. If we have broken his laws, it is right that he calls us to account for that. Thirdly, we find it offensive to be told that we are sinners. Back in the 18th century, there was a woman called the Duchess of Buckingham, and she once wrote this. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting to those of us with high rank and good breeding. Now, even those of us who don't have titles, I guess we can relate to that sentiment, that we resent being lumped together as sinners with everybody else. We think of ourselves as being good people with standards, especially if we are religious. So the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they hated him for telling them that they were sinners and for saying that they were slaves to sin. And fourthly, it's confrontational. We don't like being told we are sinners because it confronts us with inconvenient truths about ourselves. It shines light on things that we would rather were left in the dark. It's horrible, isn't it, seeing ourselves as we really are. How do you feel when you hear your voice on a recording or when you see yourself in a photo or in a video? Many of us hate it. We say, is that what I really sound like? Is that what I really look like? How much more so with sin. Is that what I'm really like? We hate it. It's not how we see ourselves. We don't want to face up to it. But if it's the truth, it's important that we do. It's shocking, isn't it, how blind we can be to what we are really like. In the Old Testament, King David committed adultery. He then had the woman's husband killed And the prophet Nathan comes and he tells David a story, a parable, about a man who acted wickedly. And it is so obviously a story about David and what he has done, but he doesn't see it. And as he hears this story, David gets really, really angry. And he says, at the end, he says, this wicked man should be punished. And then Nathan says to him, you are the man. Like David, we have a staggering capacity for deceiving ourselves. For seeing the sins of other people, but being blind to our own sins. We need confronting. So that's the summary charge, that we are sinners. Our instinctive response is to reject the charge because we see it as negative, judgmental, offensive, confrontational. So how is anyone ever going to accept that they are a sinner? It feels like a lost cause. C.S. Lewis used to go around speaking at various events, speaking about the Christian message. His reflection was this. He said, the greatest barrier that I have met is the total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. Now, that is a big problem, isn't it? Because if we won't accept we are sinners, there is nothing God can do for us. Jesus said... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so as C.S. Lewis went on to write, we have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. But how do we do that? Thankfully, it's not just up to us. God himself is at work to convince us that we are sinners. And that's our third point, the lead counsel. Jesus said in John 16, verse 8, speaking about the Holy Spirit, he said this. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Jesus says one reason the Holy Spirit would be sent was to convict or to convince us that we are sinners who deserve judgment, that we are not the righteous people we like to think we are don't know if you watched any of the, uh, the COVID inquiry, if you followed that online. Um, the lead counsel at the COVID inquiry was the formidable Hugo Keith, KC, the star at the bar, as he was called. Highly intelligent, meticulous on detail, not intimidated by anyone, whether it's former prime ministers or cabinet ministers. He was ruthless, exposing inconsistencies, failings, lies, cover-ups. Well, the Holy Spirit is an even more formidable barrister, prosecutor, exposing the failings, the cover-ups in our lives. That's part of his job. But how does he do it? Well, the main tool, the main weapon the Holy Spirit uses is the Word. It's the Bible. So Ephesians 6 says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it's saying that the word of God, it cuts us deep. It reveals what's going on inside. It exposes our hearts. Or to change the metaphor, James 1 says that the word is like a mirror in which we see ourselves as we really are. So in the word, we see what God is like. We see his character, his law. It exposes us. It convinces us that we are sinners. So as in Acts 2, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? A while back, I had to wear um, an ECG heart monitor for 24 hours. And I felt, you know, I felt okay. When the results came back, apparently... My heart had been doing funny things 74% of the time. Now, a spiritual ECG would be a pretty useful little gadget to have, wouldn't it? To find out what is wrong with our hearts spiritually. Well, the Word of God is that monitor. So our ECG is the ESV or the NIV or whatever translation you want to use. By the way, don't worry, I'm not about to drop dead. I think all is okay, but it's, um, all is in hand. So the Spirit uses the word to show us we are sinners. And our conscience confirms this truth to us. So Romans 2, five says that their conscience also bears witness. So God has got one of his legal team on the inside. In all of us. So hardwired into us is our conscience. And our conscience is a God-implanted moral alarm that goes off when we do wrong. When we sin. And through God's word, what the Holy Spirit does is he he turns up the volume on the alarm so that we can't ignore it. So that the alarm is not just some sort of faint beep in the distance of someone's car alarm going off miles away, but it's like the fire alarm in the room in which we are sitting. So how do you get someone from I'm a good person to I'm a sinner heading for judgment? How do you get from self-righteous Pharisee looking down on other people to humble tax collector saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, God the Holy Spirit convinces us that we are sinners through God's word working on our conscience. So we need to be hearing God's word. I mean, sometimes the Holy Spirit can use a single verse, just a single verse to get under our skin to convince us, I really am a sinner. And so we would say, you know, keep coming to church, do a Hope Explored course, read a gospel with a Christian friend, and listen carefully to this next bit as we run through the charges. So the summary charge against us in in God's word is that we are sinners. What does that actually mean? What does that look like? What have I I actually done wrong? So when you're charged with a crime, you go to your preliminary hearing, The charge sheet specifies what exactly it is you are accused of. So the question is, what is on our charge sheet before God? It could not be more serious. What the Bible confronts us with is a list of capital offences. So, offences deserving the death penalty in God's sight. Offences against him. And ultimately, you see, all sin is against God. As David says in Psalm 51, he says, against you, you only have I sinned? What are the charges? They're there on your sheet. First, we've abused God's love. God as creator has given us everything. Stunningly beautiful world is our home. Everything provided. Food, sunshine, rain, health, family, friends, work, life itself. What is our response? Romans 1 says, They didn't honour him as God or give thanks to him. Imagine, Imagine a child growing up in a loving home, everything provided, but the child just ignores his parents. Takes and takes, but not a word of thanks, not a word of acknowledgement. Doesn't say a word to them, not a single word, just completely blanks them. Behaves as if they don't exist, day after day, year after year. That is basically how we've treated God. We've abused his love. One metaphor the Bible uses is spiritual adultery or prostitution. That we've ignored our maker, our husband, we've gone after other lovers. Jesus condemned the people of his day as being an evil and adulterous generation. Second, we've trampled God's glory in two ways. So firstly, we've exchanged his glory. God is glorious, we should worship him, but Romans 1 says of humanity, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So that's saying we reject the glorious creator and we put created things in his place, so instead of living for him, we live for success, money, work, family, a relationship. So we put these created things in the center circle of our lives and we seek our identity, our meaning, our purpose in them rather than in God. So we've exchanged his glory and also we fall short of his glory. God's glory is his perfection. His perfect righteousness and purity and holiness And we were made in his image, we were made to reflect his perfect character, a bit like the moon reflects the sun, the glory of the sun. But Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall a long, long way short of his glory. And seeing what God is like in his glory, as revealed in his word, it exposes how enormous the gap is between us. So when the prophet Isaiah had a vision of God in his holiness, his response was, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. When we see God in his holiness, we realize that it's like we're covered in mud and we're standing in a spotless white room. Third, we've betrayed God's rule. Jesus told a story of a country in which the citizens hated their ruler and they said this, Luke 19. We do not want this man to reign over us. That is our default attitude to God, our rightful ruler. We do not want him to rule over us. We want to run our lives our own way, as we see fit, without divine interference. The um, the Wolf Hall trilogy, I don't know if you've read that, by Hilary Mantle, is about the reign of Henry VIII, and a recurring theme in the books is the crime of treason. Treason is when you are disloyal to the king. You reject his rule. You want him to be overthrown. It was the worst crime for which the worst punishment was reserved. More serious than murder. Well, the Bible's saying we are guilty of treason. To reject God as king, it's the ultimate treason. Now, if we object and we say, well, actually, you know what? We, I do some pretty good things. It's a bit like a sailor saying, I work hard on board ship. I do my job well. Why would you condemn me? Because the ship we're on is flying the Jolly Roger. We're pirates. Fourth, we've broken God's law. God's law expressed how he wants us to live and the heart of it was the Ten Commandments But Jesus said the two most important commandments were these. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love our neighbour, that is other people, as ourselves. The Bible fills out what it means to love other people. To go the extra mile. To be patient, kind, not envy, not boast, not insist on our own way. To love even our enemies. To love practically in action, not just in words. Well, if if somebody wrote a biography of you, of your life, would a fitting title for the book be Love God, Loved Others, 100%? Would they be appropriate words to engrave on your headstone? Now, we might say, well, I haven't kept all those commands perfectly, but I think I've done okay. I think I've done pretty well. But God's law... His law is not like an exam in which we can get 60% and still pass. God's law is like a sheet of glass. One crack and it's broken. It's useless. Or God's law is like the driving test. One serious mistake, it's an instant fail. So James 2 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And it's not just actions. It's about attitudes as well, isn't it? Do you remember how Jesus applied God's law at the heart level? And he said "He said that to lust is to commit adultery in our hearts. He said to hate is to murder in our hearts. And judged by that, we'd have to say, well, we're, we're all adulterous murderers. And it's not just the bad we do. It's about the good we fail to do. And our failure to keep God's law, it damages, it damages people He has made. That's our fifth point. We've trashed God's creation. So, yes, we've trashed the beautiful natural world God has made, polluted it, not cared for it as we should, but much more importantly, we've trashed other people that he's made in his image precious to him. Because when we don't love other people, we damage them, don't we? And, you know, we may not be people who abuse others and kill others with our hands, as some people do, but we surely do it with our words. The Bible says in James 3, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. What damage we do with our words, with our tongues. Slander, gossip, unkind comments. How would you feel if you found out that a pupil at school had been bullying your child or that a teacher at the school had been abusing your child, how does God feel when we mistreat people who are dear to him? And number six, we've corrupted God's goodness. God created humanity good, but we've become corrupt at the deepest level of our being. So Jesus said in Mark 7, he said, from within, out of the heart of man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. We may appear righteous to other people, as the Pharisees did, but Jesus said that inside they were full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So we're a bit like apples that look shiny on the outside but are rotten inside. And the dirty water that is in our hearts, it often spills out of our mouths in things that we say. So Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the mouth is like the overflow overflow pipe of the heart. And this corruption makes us evil in God's sight. So Jesus said, he said to his disciples, Jesus said, if you then who are evil, these are Multiple serious charges, how do we plead? Guilty or not guilty? It leaves us with a stark choice. if, it's a, if you go to a preliminary hearing and you plead not guilty, what happens next is that the charge uh, sorry, the case goes to trial. So things move from the magistrates court to the Crown Court. And it's kind of the same with us, that if we plead not guilty now, our case will go to trial at the final judgment, in the ultimate crown court. So Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that to face judgment. God himself will sit as judge. All the evidence will be brought out. Not just the WhatsApp messages at the COVID inquiry, but everything. Once we get to that trial, it is too late to change our plea. How do we imagine that going? The Bible warns that we'll be found guilty, we'll be sentenced to eternal punishment. And that's something we're going to look at next week. What is the alternative? The alternative is that we plead guilty now at this preliminary hearing. We face up to the truth. We come clean. We admit that we're sinners, guilty as charged. Now, normally, if you do that in a court of law, what happens is you get a reduced sentence. But God holds out to us this staggering offer, not a reduced sentence, but a royal pardon. All charges dropped. All sins forgiven. Everything paid for through Jesus. Jesus. 1 Timothy 1 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the the Christian good news. This rescue, this royal pardon, is held out to us through Jesus. But step one is pleading guilty. We have to plead guilty. We have to accept the charges and say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Apparently... um, In law, a guilty plea has got to be clear and unambiguous. So if in a court of law, apparently, if you say, I plead guilty, but I was only acting in self-defence, or I plead guilty, but I didn't mean to do it, that is recorded by the court as a plea of not guilty. Because you're basically saying you've got a defence to the charge. And it's the same with God, that we need to plead guilty as charged, without excuse, without reservation, without qualifications. So we need to do that, and then we need to ask for mercy through Jesus. And that's really key, that the point of pleading guilty is not that I'm going to resolve now to just do better, I'm going to go away and improve myself. It's not like sort of getting your homework back from the teacher, and it's been marked, and saying, Oh, great. You know, I can see where I've gone wrong now. So I'm going to go away now and I'm going to try a bit harder. Imagine doing that in a court of law. Imagine being in a court of law, and at the end you say, Well, thank you for reading out the charges. I plead guilty, and you know, I'll try harder next time. Have a nice day, see, you, and you walk out the door. No, we plead guilty, and then we ask for mercy through Jesus. And the way the Hope Explored course that we run here on the barge the way it summarizes it is three A's. Firstly, accept that I'm a sinner. Secondly, acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior God has sent. And thirdly, ask for forgiveness and for new life. If for those here today who have done that, we must never forget how merciful God has been to us we must never forget the basis on which we are right with God. We are guilty sinners who have been royally pardoned. And so, gratitude, thanksgiving, should be the theme music of our lives. And if we want to help other people get right with God, we have to confront them with the charges. We we can't take shortcuts because this is how we enter the kingdom of God. So, On the door into the kingdom of God, we find this charge sheet, and pleading guilty is the only way in. Now, some churches today claim that actually there is another door into the kingdom, and on this other door is not a list of charges, but a list of psychological needs. Are you looking for purpose? Are you looking for peace in life? Are you looking for direction? Are you looking for meaning? If so, enter here. Jesus will give you all of this. And there's no mention of sin. There's no need to plead guilty. There's no offence. And it's much more acceptable to the modern consumer. But the Bible's very clear that there's no back door into the kingdom. The ancient door is the only way in. Now, our psychological longings may lead us to that door, And once inside the kingdom, we may well find that many of these psychological needs are wonderfully met. But to get into the kingdom, we have to face up to the charges. We have to plead guilty and ask for mercy. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And when Paul explains the gospel in Romans, he spends the first three chapters establishing that we are sinners, all of us. And so we mustn't skip this step. So if there were those who haven't yet pleaded guilty, we need to, and we need to do it urgently before it's too late. The stakes could not be higher, as we're going to see next week, and today today would be a good day to face up to the charges, to plead guilty, and to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let's pause for a moment to reflect on what we've heard, and then we're going to join in prayer together.